Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Coronapod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. We're entering a new era now. We have new COVID strategies. There's some new unknowns and we've got a vaccine. Hi, listeners. Welcome to Coronapod. Benjamin here in the hosting chair and I'm joined by Ewan Calloway, senior reporter here at Nature. Ewan, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me. Not at all. Well, you and and I are going to talk about vaccines today, as we often do on Coronapod. And uh, as vaccines, I guess, get rolled out around the world, a lot of governments are doing it in kind of a, a phased pattern, right? Sort of the, the most at risk at the top, then people over 80, then people over 70, and, and it goes on. But if you sort of take that to its natural conclusion, the people who are youngest, maybe at the bottom of the list, are children. And there hasn't been a huge amount of discussion about what to do when it comes to vaccinating children. And it's something that you've been looking at for nature this week. Yeah. Exactly this. I mean, number one, you know, when you think of vaccines in general, you think of kids because that's when we get nearly all of our vaccines. With COVID-19, it's a different story, you know, because these are vaccines that were developed in the midst of a pandemic that seemed to affect people more as they got older. So, you know, when these vaccines were designed and being trialed, you know, the, the initial goal was like, can we keep people out of the hospital? Can we keep people from dying? And although there have been really unfortunate deaths and severe cases in kids, they're exceedingly rare. And so kids weren't kind of thought of as being the number one target for for these vaccines. But now, as some countries, some rich countries, are able to vaccinate large numbers of their adult populations, they are starting to think that maybe we should be including children in our vaccination programs. Yeah, maybe before we get into some of the trials that are going on, I mean, I think you kind of raised a question there that sort of leapt to my mind straight away is, do we need to vaccinate children at all? As you say, there there are obviously some, some really sad cases where children have been made sick or, you know, in some cases died. But generally speaking, it seems that data suggests that overall, most children don't get severe disease and aren't seeming to spread the virus to other people to the same amount as adults do. Yeah. So there is this slightly mysterious syndrome called uh, multi-inflammatory syndrome that does affect children. One estimate is around a rate of one in 1,000, but that could be an overestimate because, as you say, most kids don't even get sick. But I think one reason for 
thinking about vaccinating kids, which involves trialing vaccines in kids, is yes, to prevent these rare cases of severe disease and death. But then as fortunate countries vaccinate ever larger portions of their population, you're seeing, if you just look at the statistics, that COVID is hottest in younger people right now. And particularly with faster spreading variants, children where previously they weren't really that important in maintaining transmission in the community might start to play an outsized role. And so then you think about vaccinating children as a means to achieving that elusive, you know, herd immunity that we've been talking about for a while. And lastly, I mean, I didn't really explore this in my story, but, you know, vaccinating children is a luxury. You know, we're in a world where many countries haven't even started their vaccination programs in adults. And is it right to be preparing to vaccinate a portion of the population that doesn't tend to get ill when other countries can't even protect their most at risk? You know, I don't have answers to that question. It doesn't necessarily mean we shouldn't be trialing these vaccines in children, but it's something I think to think about. Well, trials are undergoing, Ewan, as I understand, to test vaccines. And there's a bunch of questions I've got about that. In the first instance, you know, who's doing these trials? And I think, you know, you've been on the show before talking about how companies are very selective about who they get involved in their trials. How does that work when you're talking about children, right? It's a, it's a one word, but it can mean anything from, I guess, two years old to sort of 16 years old and what have you. So, so what's, what's going on? So the first trials were in teens. In fact, Pfizer and BioNTech which developed a successful RNA vaccine, included, I think, 16 and 17-year-olds and older in their initial trial. And that vaccine is licensed to be used against that age group. Though they and others, including Moderna, have started trials maybe at the beginning of this year looking at adolescents, so 12 to 15-year-olds. And those trials were much simpler. They gave the same dose they do to adults. And so far, early results are good. What I've been looking at, though, is this idea that, you know, maybe we want to look into younger age groups, so under 12s, down all the way to children as young as six months. And those same two developers, both Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech, have launched trials in the last month or so testing COVID-19 vaccines in those age groups. And those trials are going to be run pretty differently from the trials in adults and even the trials in, in adolescents. So how are companies going about figuring out what dose to use in the first instance? Yeah, so that's the first question, I think. And the thing to say is that, I mean, safety is obviously important in all vaccine trials and all medicines trials. But when you're talking about children, safety is paramount, you know, especially when you're talking about a new vaccine protecting against a disease that they don't really, in large numbers, get sick from. So as a result of that abundance of caution, people want to look at different doses of vaccine in children. And I said earlier that we're looking at children under 12 down to as young as six months, they're going to be starting with the older end of that category, just to make sure the people who are most like the 12 to 15 year olds who've already safely received vaccine. And there the, the calculus will be, you know, what gets you the best immune response with the fewest I mean, side effects is, I guess, the term you people use, but the side effects are the vaccine working. You know, we're talking about fevers and, you know, maybe mild headache, things like things like that. So it's about identifying that that dose that looks like it will protect against infection, but also, you know, doesn't put you out of school for a week. I mean, especially when the virus isn't going to do that. Why should the vaccine? And if the first instance is trying to work that sort of thing out, I mean, I suppose 
taking that through to its conclusion is how do you know if it's worked? If this is a disease, COVID-19, that really doesn't necessarily obvious or severe symptoms in children, how do you know if, if the vaccine is doing what it should do? So once this safe dose is established, these trials have kind of a second portion where they're going to be a little bit more like the adult trials, which enrolled tens of thousands of people and randomly gave people two doses of vaccine or two doses of placebo and then followed them to see uh, the rates of infection afterwards. But the kids, they're looking at a few thousand participants and they will be following them and looking out for signs of COVID. But as you say, because kids don't tend to get really severe manifestations of disease, they're going to be looking at their blood, looking at immune markers as a way to tell if the vaccine is likely to have worked. They'll be looking and saying, did you produce the same immune response as the 12 to 15 year olds or you know, the young adults who looked like they're protected? There's a slight chance that we might see stronger evidence for efficacy in kids. In the adolescent trial, Pfizer and BioNTech have reported early results, and they found a handful of cases in the placebo group and absolutely none in the the kids who got the vaccine, accompanied by really good immune responses. So that was a strong signal that the vaccine is working. And I guess the other point on this is that some people have told me that if you're thinking about these trials and how to measure success, you should be thinking about how you want to use the vaccine in children. So if you want to prevent disease, you should be able to show that. If you want to prevent transmission and have kids as part of an effort to get herd immunity, you should try and demonstrate that. But showing an effect on transmission is much more difficult. I'm not sure at the end of these trials whether we'll have strong evidence that these vaccines prevent disease or block transmission. We'll probably know that they trigger a strong immune response and we'll have to go from there and infer its effects in other arenas, which is likely to be good. You know, these vaccines are showing signs of preventing disease and blocking transmission in adults. So maybe there's no reason to think they won't do the same in kids. Is there the possibility, though, that, I mean, the immune system is a fantastically complex thing, that we will see something really, really different in a six-month-old than we would in anybody else, just because maybe they haven't been exposed to as many pathogens throughout their life, this sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, children aren't little adults. Their immune systems are very dynamic and developing and changing all the time. They've seen fewer pathogens. You know, they've been exposed to fewer antigens, which are the pathogen molecules that vaccines are based on. So typically, you know, children mount really good responses against vaccines. In some age categories, they might need extra doses when they're young. In older categories, they might need fewer doses, less of a boost than than older people do. And I think investigators in these trials understand that, yeah, they have to take this into account when you're just looking at the immune response you get. But then, you know, if you think about safety, which again is, is number one, I think they have to be really careful that these vaccines aren't triggering any sort of immune response that becomes pathogenic or pathologic. You know, in the adult trials, you know, people were looking out for the potential that the vaccines could trigger something called enhanced disease that you see when somebody who's vaccinated later becomes infected. And they found no signs of that. But I think people want to look extra closely at this possibility in children just because their immune systems are different. And then with this multi-system inflammatory syndrome I talked about earlier, 
that you know seems to be triggered by infection, you'll want to make doubly sure that vaccination isn't triggering the same syndrome, but something that's in, indicative of it. So people will be looking very, very closely, I think, at the immune responses of the child participants in these trials. So there's just any sign that anything is slightly awry. One thing we haven't talked about, of course, is ethics. And obviously, you know, if I volunteer for a trial, I'm going into it, you know, the, the costs and benefits are laid out and nothing is without its risks, of course. But I would imagine that in this situation where, where the vaccines are being tested on children, there are a lot of questions about, you know, how consent is given and, and things like that. For sure. You know, adults who participate in a trial must provide informed consent, which, you know, there are two words there. So it's not just saying yes to this trial. The investigators have to make sure that you understand what you're getting into, which involves watching videos and checking a lot of boxes. It's that sort of thing. Children can't provide consent. Their parent or guardians must provide that informed consent. But children above a certain age must provide assent, meaning you have to get their buy-in. So even if their parents have signed up for it, if a 12-year-old says, you know, having a bad day or whatever, I don't want to do this, then they're not doing it. And the investigators are obliged to do that. And they also have to pitch their materials to children so that they can understand what they're getting into. And the age, I think, varies on jurisdiction. And people are telling me it varies on the child. I spoke with an investigator who's working on the Pfizer and BioNTech trial, and she's going to try and get assent from children as young as five or even younger. You know, she, she said these kids, they know what's going on. They know about the pandemic. That's why they're out of school. You know, so they're interested. They're eager to participate in, in those instances. Yeah, so the ethics are definitely different. And again, you know, I think the, the calculus on risk benefit is also different. You know, you want to err much more on the side of safety. You and last week on Coronapod, Nora and Heidi were talking about these kind of very rare but incredibly serious blood clots that have been seen in some people who have received vaccines and, and the scientists who are kind of racing to work out what the link is, you know, is there a link between the two? Has news of that maybe affected the trial's that are going on or that are being planned, do you think? Yes, without a doubt. The University of Oxford in February, I believe, started a small trial of several hundred children as young as six. And that trial was paused while investigations continue into the links of that vaccine to these very rare blood clots. And, you know, with news that there seems to be a safety signal with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, a similar signal, Johnson & Johnson was getting ready to enroll, I think, children as young as 12 into trials of their vaccine. And that enrollment, along with, you know, all use of the vaccine, has been paused. So, you know, these trials, they're not canceled, they're paused. But I think when you're dealing with even a very, very rare side effect, I think people want to see not just a weighing of the risks and the benefits. With children, people told me that we need to understand the mechanisms that might be at play. And it could well be that they're not at play in, in children because they're not of reproductive age, for instance. So yeah, the discussions are between you know regulatory agencies and developers and sponsors and investigators. But scientists told me that we need to work out much more about what might be causing these very rare links before we think about giving these vaccines to children again. Well, one thing that's been discussed you know, quite a bit is whether in adults you would receive a yearly COVID booster shot, maybe to mitigate the effects of variants or what have you. Could you envisage maybe a situation where a COVID-19 vaccination is given to children as part of their regular 
vaccination programs. Of course, you know, at, at various stages, you know, sort of six months, two years and so forth, they're given a bunch of different ones. So do you think COVID will be thrown into the mix? People are thinking about that, but it depends on the answers to a lot of the questions that we don't know the answer to, such as the future of the pandemic and the results of these trials. But if we want to include COVID vaccines in routine immunizations, I think people will want to know when is the best time to give them in a child's lifetime? And, you know, when is the best time to give boosters, et cetera, et cetera. And you want to make sure that adding a COVID vaccine to that schedule doesn't interfere with the responses to other important vaccines that children are receiving in the first few years of their lives. And these vaccine interference studies have been done with other vaccines as they've been included in children's schedule of immunizations, which, you know, you as a parent know is getting longer and longer. So those studies won't be done now, but they'll need to be done in the future if we want to make this part of the routine immunization schedule. And the other thing to think about is it maybe this will be a little bit more like influenza vaccine, which you don't really think of it as a routine immunization because you know they don't have to get it. One of the large reasons we vaccinate children against influenza is to protect older at-risk adults in the community because maybe you can cut down circulation in children. You might have knock-on effects in the wider community. So maybe it might be something more like that. But again, a lot to work out. I mean, as, as the father of a young child, I'm split, you know, I mean, vaccines are amazing. They're miracles. They're the greatest thing that we've ever invented. But taking your kid to get another vaccine, I mean, you do it. You definitely do it. But you're, it's not your favorite day of the year, is it? You and I will 100% agree with you there. An absolute miracle, but cure. it's always a sad afternoon, you know, once it gets done. But anyway, let's leave it there for the time being. You and Callaway, thank you so much for joining me as ever. You're welcome. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.